Hi, it's Kim from Harbor Academic. Closures rightly abound in the outbreak of COVID-19, and we here at Harper Academic and HarperCollins hope you and your family are safe and well. Before everything got turned upside down, I was able to talk with one of my favorite house authors. Good afternoon, it's Sarah Perry here. Sarah's latest novel, After Me Comes the Flood, is actually her debut. We've published her books a little bit out of order. One hot summer's day, John Cole decides to leave his life behind. He shuts up the bookshop no one ever comes to and drives out of London. When his car breaks down, he becomes lost and he goes looking for help. He stumbles into the grounds of a grand but dilapidated house. Its residents welcome him with open arms. They all know him by name, they've prepared a room for him, and they claim to have been waiting for him all along. But who are these people? And what do they intend for John? After Me Comes the Flood is available now in paperback original from our imprint, Custom House. I hope you enjoy our latest conversation with Sarah. You can find our earlier recordings with Sarah about her books, The Essex Serpent and Melmoth, and conversations with a host of other HarperCollins authors on our SoundCloud page. See our website, harperacademic.com, for a link, or type in Harper Academic Calling and SoundCloud into your favorite internet search engine. We'll have more interviews for you as soon as we can. From all of us here at Harper Academic, stay safe and well, and look after each other. So today on the phone with us, we have Sarah Perry, author of, among other things, The Essex Serpent and Melmoth. And today we're going to be talking about what's actually her debut novel, After Me Comes the Flood. So Sarah, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. It's very kind. So I had the pleasure of reading After Me Comes the Flood in 2014 when it was published in the UK. And I remember that reading experience vividly because I was just bewildered. I was very excited and I knew that I was reading something very smart, but I was also just completely bewildered. And I rarely felt while reading that I was on sure footing. And I've come back to it, obviously, since it's been a long time, since 2014, um, and read it a few times to, to talk to you today. And I was struck by how it was still so disorientating to me. And that sort of replicates, I think, what happens to John, uh, our main character. It, there's a heat wave. It's, it's oppressively hot. That disorientates him. To me, the opening section it really struck me this time around that it was very fable or fairy tale-like. One that constantly turns you around as John is turned around, first trying to find the way to his car, and then when the car breaks down and he's on foot wandering through a forest and sort of getting lost as he is lost. I feel out of time, um, which perhaps will be a common question that teachers here um, will ask their students when they use this, this book in their courses to describe the setting of the novel in terms of time. You can't quite sort of pin it as present or past, present day or past, other than to me it feels just, just out of time. But you also have an exact time because it takes place over seven days. And of course we have to talk about something that you alluded to in the beginning, that the novel is out of time for you because we have published your books out of order. And so you are sort of coming back to this after, after, a, few, after a few years. So my first question is in two parts. First, sort of a, a, a process question for you. Um, what is it like to talk about this novel now, so the, given that so much sort of actual and creative time has passed for you? 
And then second, in terms of the novel itself, why was it important for you to extend the sense of John's disorientation to your readers as this story opens? Um, I, it's a strange and um, very pleasurable experience talking about it now, actually. Um, I, I think I've become more fond of it over the years. I have a tendency, I suspect, in keeping with most people to um, feel rather revolted and mistrustful of one's work for the first two or three years after publication and then after that to become kind of reconciled to it. So I do feel a kind of fondness for it. And, and also, um, I remember so lucidly the purpose behind the book and the inspiration behind the book that um, that hasn't faded away. And so I remember very, very clearly my desire that you've articulated so well here that I, I wanted the reader to feel as disoriented as the main character. So, so I remember particularly clearly having this idea that if you have a main character who is in some senses rather a blank canvas, so not possessed of any great qualities, not particularly noticeable, could pass through a crowd and, and not be noticed, then that would enable the reader to inhabit him more and therefore to experience the book as the main character does, as John Cole does. And it's really striking um, to think in retrospect that the first, one of the first titles we put was to just call it Confusion. <laughs> um, I think it was a group that was a little bit on the nose. Um, so I think very hard while I'm writing about the effect I have on the reader. I never write for myself. I never write as if it's a self-actualization process. I always write bearing in mind that there will hopefully be readers. And the effect that I wanted to have was to make the reader feel that they had stumbled into this strange house, um, you know, in a heat wave, and that they too were lonely and um, looking for something and, and totally unable to articulate what it is they're looking for. And the, the idea of it being very confusing came up repeatedly when I did events. Um, I remember one man standing up and saying in a very accusing way, uh, I, I finished this book and I was very bewildered and confused all the way through. And I said, oh, thank you. He <laughs> <laughs> denied him slightly. Um, so, yes, that, it's all about creating an experience that enables the reader to effectively be a character in the novel. That, that's what I wanted to do. One of the other sort of big parts of the framework of this book is this house that that John that John ends up at, um, and to me, it sort of seems like this house. It's owned by this woman Hester, who who we meet, um, and there there are all of these people who knew each other um, from another point in their lives, and in, and indeed another place. But to me, Hester's house, its condition is as dilapidated. These curious personalities that are there, the, the objects from sort of what we would expect from like a, a piano in a room to um, bizarre sort of uh, color choices to uh, cannonballs, which we perhaps would not expect to find in a house. But to me, this, this house seems like a curiosity cabinet. It's a built environment that has a lot of quirks and a lot of emotion sort of seeped into these walls that people either do or do not want to be reminded of. Why was this house, its creation and sort of the fact that this house in, in a way is, is another type of character, why was that so important for you in this book? Um, I think there's two things here. One of them is that I've always felt really strongly that um, the media at any rate, and certainly in the books I admire most of all, um, 
place is a, it works as a character. So if you think to yourself, what function does a character have in a novel? They exist to um, embody feelings in some way, to enact upon the other characters so that they speak to each other, they respond to each other, they behave in certain ways because they've been exposed to these characters and speaking to them. And sense of place, and certainly the built environment, I believe, can operate exactly like a character in the novel. They have personality, they affect people. Certain things happen um, or could happen because the place is the way it is that couldn't happen elsewhere. Um, so I wanted to create a kind of environment that frankly says a sort of pressure cooker. So you have obviously terrible heat waves that's affecting people and making people feel very drowsy but then you also have this building with its peculiar roof and its peculiar wallpaper and so on um, and all of that is designed to kind of drive forward this idea of a kind of um, disoriented and almost eroticized engagement with each other in this place all, all made worse and um, amplified enormously by the building and I think this partly comes from the fact that I'm a bit of an object I'm looking at my desk and I have um, a dish with a sea glass and a shell and a fossil and three porcelain compas um, and some dried rose petals. I'm not, I don't know what they're all doing there, but I should have them with me. And so, because I've always invested objects with enormous meaning um, and keep them about me, I suppose it makes sense that the house does feel like a curiosity cabinet and contains, in fact, a curiosity cabinet. Yeah. So, I think we, I mean, all of these things, when you're making work, some of it is an intellectual decision. I will describe this object in order to affect a certain um, change in the novel or a change on the reader. And part of it is just instinctive. And um, if you're like me and you're highly, highly influenced by your surroundings and have a tendency to, to be an object specialist, then all of that kind of filters through, I think. As a writer, you have to find a way to get people having the conversations that they need to have, right? Um, so if you're writing a book that is designed, as this explicitly was, to explore and to interrogate different kinds of love, our conception of what sorts of love are permissible, healthy, or worthy of the name, you know, you can't have people sitting around a dining table and say, hey, <laughs> can we talk about the English word for love and its deficiencies? Um, and so what I did in that book particularly was to use objects to um, enable me to talk about these things by having my characters speaking about them. So, for example, um, they find this collection of Anglo-Saxon riddles which leads to the poem, which I will not be able to pronounce properly. I think it's more from Edwatcher. Um, uh, and that enables people to talk about longing and separation and loneliness and so on. And, you know, it's fun. Novels are entertaining. It's nice describing things for people. One of the things that I, I loved about, the, about about this book, in addition to its ability to talk about um, various kinds of love and how it does that, is exactly what you just said, the, the use and incorporation of of Old English and to some extent medieval texts within this this novel. And I do appreciate your jokes within the text about the pronunciation of, of Ed Wacker. I always thought it was Ed Wacker, <laughs> Wacker. It's rare, I think, for someone who is writing a novel c contemporary to, to today, to the present day, to, to go back that far. So I, I always have a deep appreciation when, when someone does um, and when someone makes 
use of those texts. What does old English, in this case old Saxon, poetry and riddle uh, in medieval literature, what does that do for you as a writer and a thinker when you're constructing novels for today? Um, well, the first thing to say is that I'm really terribly ignorant um, about it all. I've not read an enormous amount. You know, I've read things like The Wonder, which I think is possibly my favourite, and Wolf and, uh, what did you say, Ed Wacker? I, that's, what, that's what I think, but... Um, yeah, okay, so you, I think you know more about it than I do, so I'm now going to pretend I've always said that. <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know any enormous amount about it, but here's the thing. I'm totally fascinated by the which is simultaneously um, deeply imbued with meaning and very rich, but also fabulous, uh, a, a real fabling storytelling. So, um, you know, it's, the work in Edward's poem is, has hanging about it the feeling of a fairy tale, mm-hmm. of um, a woman being stolen away, of warring tribes, of islands separated by, you know, an, an, an impassable, stormy stretch of water, which kind of hits at that kind of god particle that we have as storytellers or story readers of, of wanting to go right back to that kind of primal need to be told a tale. Um, and that's very pure. In, in the world where the act of writing has become hung about with so much anxiety about what constitutes literature, what constitutes something being worthy of being read, what constitutes um, kind of um, authenticity, who has the right to say these things. There is something about that period of writing and all of those early forms of storytelling, right the way back to the Bible, further to the epic of Gilgamesh, before it all became attended by all those anxieties, it feels to be incredibly exciting, incredibly pure. But there's something else that's really amazing about it, which is as well as being stable, it's so full of feeling and so full of yearning. It's a love poem that you can't possibly untangle because you don't know who any of these characters are, who really is speaking to whom. Um, and then another layer to that. Um, is that we don't narrate it and we don't know what it means. And I, as I think a character says in the book, because of that, it belongs to everybody. So if I were to read it now, um, what it means to me now and how I would interpret it now is mine. Nobody can tell me that I'm wrong. It is as I believe it to be. Um, and so it, I find all of that incredibly exciting. Um, and I worry that that kind of very pure um, attachment to, to storytelling to the started being lost. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it kind of called to me really profoundly, actually. One of the most poignant storylines for me is when Elijah talks about his faith, and then also when Hester and John are talking, and, and Hester sort of offers her view on, on Elijah's faith uh, and its loss. There is some irony, of course, that we are having this conversation about this book, and uh, I'm asking a question about Elijah's faith uh, in a leap year, uh, and only a few days past. Yeah, and only only a few days past leap day. But one of the preoccupations of any faith or most faiths, particularly Elijah, is a question of goodness and, and wickedness, and. Every character in the novel has and shows the reader sort of their ability and capacity to do bad things or to try to do bad things. 
And at one point, Elijah says, what surprises me isn't that we sin, but that we manage a single good action in all of our lives. And one way of thinking about the concept of original sin is that it's kind of a great leveler in a way because it allows us equally all to be bad. And then sort of the flip side is that we are all then equally capable of goodness. I know that sort of the question of goodness and what it means to be good is something that is a is a bit of a preoccupation of yours. So in this novel, how do you think characters battle with this question of goodness? Um, you're right, but it is a constant preoccupation of mine, um, becoming very explicit, I suppose, in Melmoth, and it's been written about now in the book that I'm working on at the moment. And I think there's something really interesting here which is that having come out of a sort of Christian fundamentalist background, um, what I have sort of retained is is the flipped coin of the concept of original sin, right? So um, if you're brought up believing that everybody's a a sinner, that's quite a devastating theology in some ways. But actually, the corollary of that is that if we're all equally... Um, capable of failure, failing towards whatever concept of goodness that we instinctively move towards, then we're equally capable to access grace um, and forgiveness and to move on and so on. Um, so I, was, I really enjoy provoking my readers into an engagement with their own conception of what is sin, and particularly their conception of what is forgivable or unforgivable. So I think one of the areas that uh, the 21st century has entered a kind of new puritanism around is a kind of very narrow and actually quite um, restrictive view of morality, sexual morality in particular. This um, idea that it is the, the kind of last great thing that you could do is to entertain even emotionally an attachment to somebody else, or for example, that your emotional attachment to somebody could be furtive, could be damaging, and, and I. I don't want to um, say too much for the sake of um, the readers who haven't read it yet, but, you know, people behave in really shocking ways mm-hmm. in this book. Um, they set out to hurt the people that they love most in ways that are really um, damaging. But it's still love. And I think that's the proposition of the book, really, um, and something that I think I stand by. I was very young when I started writing this book, but I do think I stand by this idea that um, this very narrow perspective idea we have of what constitutes love, and it must be socially sanctioned in a number of ways, that it must be entirely benevolent, you know, that it must be reciprocated to the precise degree in which it is offered, um, that it cannot be offered to two people simultaneously, that it must never cause any harm, and so on, um, I, I find quite troubling. So it was quite fun for me to force John, my lead character, to encounter all these different kinds of love and to understand that um, the sensation itself has a virtue and a goodness, even if the outcome is unhelpful, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very strange combination of Puritan and, and amoral history. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it does, but it does, it does totally work. And yeah, in the one of the complexities that I think this novel asks John, um, and consequently the reader too, is, is just what you said that we have to hold these various contradictions all in the same place and realize that they all 
are not mutually exclusive exclusive of each other. And that's sometimes a very hard thing for, for people to do, to not be so absolute. Yeah, it's really difficult with people. And the more people get annoyed when I do it in my fiction, the more I'm going to do it. So, um, you know, it's really telling in the epic serpent that there's... Um, the one thing that really winds people up is that there is marital infidelity depicted in a way that doesn't instantly rain down kind of lightning strikes of, of condemnation on them, whereas they're quite happy with murder and deceit and violence. Um, but if you if you put a foot out of line on, on that kind of morality, it's sort of the last gasp of, of a kind of a conventional morality, really. So I, I have enormous fun playing with it and winding people up. well sarah thank you so much for joining us again you were the first person actually the first author of ours to be on our podcast series three times so so we always yeah we we always we always appreciate talking with you so thank you so much it's been a pleasure thank you so much kim